And good day. Welcome to the University of Minnesota Extension podcast, Minnesota CropCast. I'm your host, Dave Nikolai, along with my co-host, uh, Dr. Seth Nave. He is Extension Soybean Specialist at the University of Minnesota. Our special guest uh, today for this podcast is Dr. Fabian Fernandez. Uh, Fabian is Extension Soil Specialist in Soil Fertility here at the University of Minnesota. And welcome, Fabian, uh, on Thanks, a day here when we're getting close to the end of harvest. That's right. Yeah. Beautiful uh, weather and few, beautiful colors for, for this time of the year. Seth, I think our temperatures are in for a change, though. Uh, we've been fairly warm here. They're predicted uh, for this coming weekend to become a little bit lower. I uh, hope you've got your soybeans out. Uh, and what do you see in southern Minnesota and corn and, and in harvest? Uh, are we going to get ready uh, for uh, fertilizer applications in your estimation from what you've seen? Yeah, things are things have have been moving, and um, you know, it, I think we've the farmers have been very happy with their conditions this fall. You know, pretty much statewide, uh, really warm temperatures, and we were we went into harvest so dry that when we did have have some of these rains, that it didn't really hold farmers out too much. I think there was a few seems to be a few soybeans, few more soybeans than I thought would be in the field, but you know, there always are some that just hang out there, and it seems like some take a while to get to. So. Those are going to be a little bit harder to harvest with these kind of nuisance rains and colder temperatures. But um, the the corn, the soybeans in southern Minnesota, as I've been around, are pretty much out. And and the corn is really there's not a lot of corn left, and there's a lot of tillage has been done. So I think I think probably the tillage is the best indicator of the fall for the for farmers is that when they get a lot of tillage done, you know that they're uh, pretty much on top of things. Well, we want to turn to our guest uh, next, and I think it's our first time with us, uh, Fabian. You're in the podcasting studio, so do you want to tell the folks a little bit about your own background, um, where you grew up, went to school, and how you ended up here at the University of Minnesota? For sure, yeah. So I, uh, I grew up in Argentina, in the Pampas region. My province actually is called La Pampa. It's right in the center of Argentina. There's a lot of uh, farming there. And the, the farming over there is more uh, kind of a combination of cattle and uh, grain production. And um, so I grew up there. Um, I was not in a farm, but um, all my uncles uh, farm. And they are about, you know, 30 minutes from where I, from my home. So I was in the farm a lot. And um, I, I always liked agriculture since I was uh, a young kid. Um, I knew I wanted to go into study something related to agriculture. I didn't know exactly what, but uh, during my high school years in Argentina, we have uh, technical schools for different uh, vocations, and so there's one for agriculture, and that's where I went. I I did all my classes there. We have the regular classes and then classes related to agriculture, and it cover everything from animal production to beekeeping to horticultural crops to grain crops, everything. And um, so I finished high school and then um, decided to, uh, well, I didn't know English. That's that's the, the first thing. I uh, decided to serve a mission for uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints uh, for two years. And I was called um, to serve in the United States. And I had no English experience. So I came here for two years as a missionary, learned the language, and in that process, I decided, hey, you know, let's let's try um, 
seeing how the university works in here. So I decided after those two years, I came to study. I went to Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah. I got my bachelor's degree. And uh, really and truly, when I started uh, college, I had no idea about PhDs or graduate school or any of that stuff. Um, in fact, um, I started uh, my undergrad knowing, again, that I wanted to do something with agriculture, but nothing more past that. I took my first uh, soils class, and I remember thinking, wow, this professor must be just really creative because having a whole semester talking about soils, is there that much to talk about soils? <laughs> Little did I know uh, that I really enjoyed that class. And then um, later I took a soil fertility class, and I just knew that that was, that was my passion. That's, that's, it felt so comfortable. And so since then, I, I've been working on, on soil fertility. I got my um, master's degree also at Brigham Young University. And it was a little bit different because I was working with archaeologists in Central America, in Guatemala, uh, looking at um, Maya archaeological sites, working on soil chemistry, trying to figure out with chemicals uh, what has what ha what took place where and things like that, helping the archaeologists and, and trying to find um, evidence of ancient agriculture. And so I did that, and then uh, my PhD was really focused on, on what I really like, which is agriculture. Uh, so I work on potassium fertility for soybeans. I finished my degree at Purdue, and I started as an assistant professor at the University of Illinois. I was there for seven years. Uh, doing similar work to what I do here at the University of Minnesota, except that over there the focus was more on phosphorus and potassium. Uh, but I had a pretty large extension appointment as well over there. And then in 2013, this opportunity came to be here at the University of Minnesota. I took it, and I am uh, working on nitrogen. I've been working on nitrogen exclusively uh, for the last 10 years. So when you started, was uh, some of the other names in the past here, Dr. George Ream still on staff? Uh, no, he was already retired. Um, John Lamb was here. Um, so, but uh, yeah, George had already retired, but I knew George very well. I had interacted uh, for, for a number of years with him. Okay, but you had an opportunity to work with John and get trained in, so to speak? Yep, yep. Great, great people. Well, that's super. And now you're working with uh, Dr. Dan Kaiser, uh, on staff. You have a graduate student program, though. That's uh, quite significant and quite large. Yeah, yeah. I've, uh, one, that's one of the things I love the most about uh, working at the university. I mean, I love doing research um, and teaching what I know, so that's why I like extension. And then graduate students, I've, I have had probably, I don't know, 15, more than 15 students so far. And uh, currently, I have um, three students uh, of my of my own, and then I actually have a student with Seth that uh, we we work together with uh, with one of those students. So, love the interaction with graduate students. Yeah, but you still have a primary extension program. Program is that right? What is what is your official um, split? So my official split is sixty research, sixty percent ex research, forty percent extension. Okay. And so yeah, I, I actually wasn't aware of that. I didn't know what your split was. I was thinking that you're a little bit more extension, but that's that's a good. That's actually a very functional functional split. I think that works works really well. Yeah, it works you. very well. You know, in Illinois, it was 75% extension, um, and that was a little too high for kind of an academic environment, you know, to make tenure and all those things. But uh, so I feel that this, this appointment is actually very good. But as 
as we know, uh, 40% extension means you're doing probably 60 to 80% extension. <laughs> Once you start working in extension, there is no going back. That's that's right. There's a, there's always plenty of questions uh, for us uh, to answer. So there's there's no, and there's always uh, somebody asking uh, to help out with a meeting somewhere and in, uh, in rural Minnesota. So there's always opportunities for us for sure. You know, I've been on the asking side a lot, and uh, and Fabian and. I think the joke in the soils department is when they see me coming down the hallway, I know Dan Kaiser and me dives back in his office. He said, well, something's coming, some meeting. But, uh, Close the door, turn off the lights. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all right, all right, that's for sure. Um, so, but talk a, l- a little bit about, I think you've been innovative uh, in terms of some of that extension programming of the, the last couple of years, working with some outside groups. I know we have a, um, a really developed a, a training and education in, on, the, on the P&K side, nutrient and on the nitrogen side, it's, it's kind of been a blend of taking advantage of the fact that we, we do have, uh, you know, opportunity with uh, uh, distance education, uh, whether it be on Zoom or other kinds of webinars and so forth. But, you know, how did that come about, that, that, that integration, and, and uh, how successful has it been? Well, you know, I feel very fortunate because we do have a pretty strong um, nutrient management group uh, here at the university. There are a number of folks uh, both here on campus and in extension with extension educators and uh, regional educators and um, and then a team of communication specialists too that help us with, with a lot of the communication. So it has really uh, been uh, really helpful to have all of these folks and... Um, uh, a big part of it uh, came about a few years ago when we were able to hire through some of the um, Fertilizer Research and Education Council AFRIC funding. Uh, we were able to um, to hire people to help us with the communication piece, and that has been really successful uh, in helping us. Uh, you know, we are doing a lot of research, but uh, then communicating all of that research takes really a lot of effort. It's not something you can just kind of do on the side. And we did a lot of that before, but uh, having people to help us specifically on that has been really, really helpful. And then, obviously, having all the expertise in different areas. Um, so I mentioned, you know, in Illinois, when I was there, I was kind of working on P&K, but I was also doing nitrogen and sulfur and all the different crops. And uh, it's it's hard to be focused when you're when you have a lot of different responsibilities. Here in Minnesota, I feel really fortunate because I am focused on nitrogen. Dan is working on PK, sulfur, you know, micronutrients. And, and so uh, Melissa Wilson working on, on manure and, and so on. There are different people doing different things, uh, precision ag. There are all sorts of different things that we, we specialize in. And we, there is crossover, obviously, but uh, we kind of focus on our little niche. And that helps us to be uh, more, more effective in terms of going deeper into the research and into um, finding answers to the questions that, that we get uh, all the time about different things. Yeah, sure. I think you've developed a really good, um, I'm, the nutrient management team seems to be a highly effective group in terms of, um, in terms of their own internal communications and, and research activities. And then of course the extension work. So really commend you all for that. I, I'm, I'm sure that no small part of that is is the the fertilizer checkoff uh, funding supporting this that kind of helps to tie you together. And so maybe we can back up a little bit and talk a little bit about um, fertilizer checkoff and and how that's generated and 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 then of course how those funds are utilized both on the research side and, and in terms of communications and extension too. 
Yeah, for sure. That that program is is extremely helpful to Minnesotan um, farmers and and everyone. Really, when you think about the impact of agriculture on everything we do in the economy and the environment, both uh, is extremely important. And so, um, it's it's a, basically a tax on on fertilizer sales. Uh, there is a small uh, tax that goes for that, and part portion and a portion of that money that gets collected is used for research and education programs around uh, fer- fertilizers. And so. It has been very successful, and it allows us again to to do all the pretty much all the work that we are doing in in nutrient management is somewhat related to those funds as well as you know other groups, but uh, and and other uh, agencies as well. You know both Minnesota and U.S. Uh, but uh, by and large, the um, the fertilizer um, uh, funds are extremely important because. Some of the bigger grants that you may get, like at the USDA or things like that, they are not so focused on on some of the work that is so needed. You know, looking at nitrogen trials, uh, looking at nitrogen rates or phosphorus and potassium rates and application timings, those kinds of questions. Uh, those big funds are not really interested in in looking at those questions, but they are extremely important and and necessary. And so these uh, these funds have uh, really helped us establish the program that we have and being able to to have the people that um, that do all this work. Yeah, I, I just, it really causes me to think a little bit about the importance of, of all of the, um, you know, just the product and rate trials that, that have to occur for both nitrogen and, and other mineral nutrition in, in corn and soybeans. I mean, we, we have this complexity of highly variable soils in Minnesota you know, some complexity around the cropping system. Um, but then our weather is so variable from year to year. Uh, to be able to make recommendations um, uh, to farmers really requires a lot of ground truthing. Uh, I mean, of course, soil fertility people have been doing these studies for 100 years, right? So this is not new. Um, you're just adapting a lot of those things. And I'm, I'm really just focusing on this kind of very narrow set of things. that's looking at, at products and, and rates, but, um, uh, maybe you can speak to it a little bit more about, you know, the importance of, of those kinds of trials and getting those out for, for producers so that you can make good recommendations. Yeah, it's, um, it, it is interesting. You mentioned that uh, I think often about um, kind of the, the bigger funds, you know, you look at national programs like USDA um, and they, they will not fund a, a project where you're looking, you know, I don't know, at nitrogen rates or timing of application, things like that. Yet any, any project that gets funded through those big research grants is looking at the guidelines that we have at the university to say, okay, what is the adequate amount of nitrogen or the adequate amount of whatever nutrient or the best placement or things like that. They look at the research that we are doing through these funds through AFREC and other um, groups. Uh, they are using those recommendations um, in their in their grant proposals. And so that, that speaks of the importance of, of having this work. Uh, and then for the farmer as well, you know, you think about taxation and what comes back to you. Well, 
the amount, and I don't recall the exact amount, but it is a very small, it's a tiny fraction. Uh, I think it's a few cents per acre uh, when it comes down to it. Um, the amount of information that farmers receive back from, from that is, is incredible. The return on the investment is, is huge. And, um, and like I say, nutrients impact not only the production and the economy, economy side, but also the environmental aspects. And so um, I often say that um, it's sometimes easier to forget the benefits that we have just simply because they are here. But think of what would happen if we didn't have this research in place. Uh, it would be anybody's guess as to you know how much to apply, when to apply, how to use fertilizers efficiently. We have that information, and it's just it doesn't happen just by accident. There is a lot of funding and a lot of research and a lot of work that goes behind uh, those guidelines. Yeah, I was I was going to ask some follow ups, but I think we should probably get to the nitrogen question and talk specifically about the year that we've had and and uh, and and uh, this relative to this fall and uh, and what what you see going out there this time of year. It's always. It's always a concern for many of us when we do have these nice falls, there's a tendency to get a lot of uh, fertilizer out. And I know anhydrous, you know, we're not applying as much anhydrous as we used to, uh, but certainly there is some anhydrous going on. And I have seen some tanks out on, you know, some 70 degree days in the last week or so. Uh, so I know there is anhydrous out there. So let's start broadly. What are, how do you, um, what are your recommendations for fall fertilizer broadly? And then we can kind of narrow down in on, on nitrogen, um, specifically uh, rates and products and, and timings and uh, soil temperatures and those things. Yeah. So uh, broadly defined, I mean, crops need nitrogen um, and they need quite a bit of nitrogen. The uh, thing to keep in mind is that now we are in October, you're looking at crops taking up nitrogen extensively around in June next year. So there is quite a long time between now and then. And the challenge with nitrogen is that once it's in the soil, it gets transformed to nitrate. Um, some products are better than others, but it eventually transforms to nitrate. And uh, if there is not a crop to take it up, you have the chance of losing that nitrogen uh, through leaching or through denitrification, things like that. And so that's if the most important thing to keep in mind, especially in falls like this one where we started harvest pretty early. There is a lot of time and uh, folks kind of get antsy to get things done, but you need to keep in mind that you have a really long window. And the other part too is the temperature. You mentioned temperature. Um, we, we know that these transformations in the soil that transform ammonium to nitrate happen with warm temperatures. And so we normally recommend that you wait until the soil temperature is 50 degrees and cooling down. And um, the reality is that the process, this transformation happens until 32, until the soils freeze. But so 50 kind of gives us a, 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 it's a good compromise between what should be done and what can be done. You know, the ideal will be to wait until the temperatures are freezing, but at that point you cannot apply anything because you cannot get into the ground, right? Right, And so 50 is kind of that middle point there where there is nitrification happening, but it's at a lower rate, so it's okay. Um, and so, yeah, keep those two things in mind, the time, the temperature, 
And then the fact that you could lose a lot of nitrogen if you don't do things correctly in the fall. I think it's, I think it's really important you mentioned this 50 degree and the fact that, you know, um, a lot of us in extension, I, I, I look at a lot of our recommendations um, with a little bit of a critical view is that we, these academics come up with these recommendations and have very good basis for those things. But sometimes over time we lose some of the nuance in those things, and and um, and sometimes they're not necessarily you know the practically the right reasons. But you know it, it sounds like 50 degree was already a compromise, and I think over time what's happened is that we've we've you know farmers have translated that to more of an absolute number. Is that okay? 50 is here, and so now we're we're good to go. And and they also kind of miss in a lot of years miss this idea about and cooling that you mentioned is that, you know, once I see a lot of farmers that once soils hit 50, then they go out and they really get aggressive on fall applications. But even, even when they have warmer temperatures after that, or even when the forecast is for warmer. So anyway, I think re reemphasizing the nuances around this is important is what I'm trying to say. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I was, we were talking before we started with Bobby and about the Minnesota department of ag, uh, does track soil temperatures, and there's an interactive map. And, the, you know, the interesting thing, when you go onto that map and the sign, you can actually see a little graph in terms of the trend. And I think, Bobby, and that's what you're alluding to here, is it's not just the absolute temperature, but you can see in the last week where things have gone. And so sometimes they're up and down and up and down and so forth, and you know things are going to continue to bounce around. Uh, we know that you know, eventually, obviously, and, and getting here close to the end of October, it looks like we're going to be colder. Uh, and so the trends be down, but that helps a little bit, doesn't it? In terms of, of making that decision. Most definitely. It it does help. It is a guideline. Uh, I always say that, you know, your farm is specific. The conditions to your farm are specific to your farm. And so the best thing you can do is look at that map so that you're not out in the field measuring temperatures every day. But once you get close to that, then go to your field and look at that temperature in your specific field, because the temperatures can vary because of soil types amount of moisture, uh, the color the, uh, that you have in the soil, the amount of residue that you have on that uh, soil, a lot of those things will impact the temperature. And so look at the temperature specifically to your farm. And like Seth was mentioning, 50 is the starting point. If you look at the forecast and it's going to be beautiful and there is no rain or anything crazy happening in the forecast, Keep waiting, you know, wait longer. You know, the longer you can wait, the better it is in terms of, of making sure that you can get the work done, but wait as long as you can rather than start as soon as you can uh, because that can pay big dividends. Uh, you know, having, and we know that the temperatures always fluctuate. I mean, if you look at uh, the, the temperatures over the years, there's always times where it will go warmer. And so the fewer days that you have warm temperatures, the more chance that you have for that nitrogen to be present next spring. Any other management considerations? Uh, we talked a little bit earlier, nitrogen inhibitors, uh, Southeast Minnesota, obviously best management practices. There's a lot of things that you have to consider, you know, geographically where you live in Minnesota, where you farm, uh, and then, and what the nitrogen sources, any comments on some of those? Yeah. So, you know, in terms of nitrogen, we've done a lot of research looking at this question. And I, one of, one of us mentioned earlier, the fact that we don't have as much anhydrous as we did in the past. And so, you know, uh, folks used to use anhydrous was number, the number one source. Now urea is the number one source. And um, some people have changed, switched from anhydrous to urea, but they kind of continue doing business as usual. And 
they are not the same thing. Uh, I do not recommend urea in the fall. Uh, the chance of that nitrification process you start is very real. And so what happens is you end up buying expensive fertilizer now, applying it now, and then having to either apply more in the spring or lose yield. And so my recommendation for fall, if you are planning to do a, 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 an application in the fall, the only source that you can use is anhydrous ammonia, and I would strongly encourage you to use a nitrification inhibitor with it just to help it along. Um, and then the, the timing, as we talked about, and then the region, as you mentioned, Dave, um, the chance of nitrogen loss is real, and it's, it's bigger in some situations. If you have a sandy soil or the southeast where we have karst topography and where the temperatures are warmer than, than other parts of the state, I would try to stay away from or actually don't even apply, don't even think of applying any nitrogen in the fall. Wait until the spring. Uh, and um, one thing that we also need to recognize is that um, sometimes we do things out of tradition. You know, back in the day, uh, there was not equipment necessarily to do a lot of the, f the spring applications. Now we have a lot of options to do applications before planting, after planting, side dressing, and you need to take advantage of those those technologies because. Um, the, the only reason we tend to apply nitrogen in the fall is because we have the time, uh, but you also have to look at, you know, what is the cost, uh, both in terms of the pounds of nitrogen that you buy and that you may lose, and also in terms of the environment. Uh, we want to have that tool available to us. It is important to have that available, but uh, if we are careless about how we, we use this tool, it can be taken away from us. I mean, the, uh, you see what is happening in terms of regulation, uh, Across, across different uh, nations, you know, Europe and even in the United States uh, and other places. And so being judicious on how we use this tool is very, very important so that we minimize the, the loss. Uh, I've done studies and, you know, we have the luxury of doing studies so that you don't have to do that in your farm and lose a lot of money. You know, we've done studies where, for instance, I apply nitrogen in the fall in a sandy soil. Well... Applying 300 pounds of nitrogen in a sandy soil in the fall yielded as much as a plot where it received no nitrogen. That tells you something, that basically that soil has no capacity to retain any of that nitrogen. So don't apply nitrogen in those conditions because it's, it's a lose-lose situation. You are buying fertilizer twice, you are, you are spending the money twice to get to the same level that you could if you were to you know, do it in the spring or side race or something like that. Yeah, that, that touches on one of my, you know, pet issues is this within field variability and, and farmers really, there's a tendency for farmers to really treat entire farms, not just fields um, in a similar matter. And we know that there's a lot of variability within fields. Um, you know, we've got eroded hilltops, we've got, you know, sandy areas and fields that even may not be the predominant series within those areas, but yet the farmers are going to, for the most part, are going to treat them. You know, there is some grid sampling and some variable rate applications um, for various reasons, but, um, you know, this, this idea about loss of N doesn't tend to always be one of those things. And, and so uh, when you look at tight, economics and you look at the cost of, of nitrogen uh, and the fact that virtually every farmer is over applying N 
to make sure that there's a safety factor there so that they can uh, achieve their maximum yields. It really shows that there's a lot of opportunity to fine-tune nitrogen management, which in turn, aside from regulatory and environmental issues, um, could really increase uh, revenues for farms if they can really carefully fine-tune nitrogen management. So I'm going to focus his question a little bit more into <laughs> the, thank you, Seth, into the um, nitrogen rate calculator. I think that's part of the answer in, in, in terms of that. Because when you first started here at University of Minnesota, uh, I remember and so forth, that was charged, you was one of those things, and you worked with, uh, with John Lamb at the time and so forth, that you were increasing the amount of that. And I always remember John saying, you know, statistically, Ann is your friend. And, you know, in other words, the, the more sites that we had and so forth. But um, we really need to hang our hat, so to speak, on on that situation here. Now we're getting close to, you know, 493 or $5 corn and, and back in there. You know, bring Seth's question in there and maybe a little bit of point on that to a focal point here. Yeah, yeah. And I would just clarify that the end that you mentioned was for number, yeah, the number of size, right. not the nitrogen. No, right, um, right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, uh, the, the more the more size that we can have. So nitrogen, nitrogen is extremely difficult to predict from year to year. If, even if you're in the same farm, the same situation from year to year, the rate that you apply that was the economic optimum this year probably will not be the same next year. Um, and so the more sites that you can have to build a database where you can say, okay, this is the distribution of responses. And this is where you, like, it, it's really a, a, a betting game. It's like when you go to a casino and you play, <laughs> that's kind of what you're doing with nitrogen in a way. I mean, these, these rates that, that we uh, recommend through the university they have a distribution. We say, you know, if you want to be 80% likely that you will be right on, this is what you should use. But there are years where you will be needing a little bit more. There will be years where you will be needing less and sometimes a lot less. And so there is a distribution. Um, And so this value is not an absolute, but it does help you manage nitrogen um, to have a, a good idea of where you should be. Um, and that's where the, the specifics of your farm also come in play. Um, Seth, you mentioned the, the soils, and we have a study with you looking at uh, drainage and how much drainage you have. And you cannot treat an area of the field where it's, you know there's going to be waterlogged or there's very likely to be really wet, the same as another place where you have adequate drainage. You know The potential for loss in those lower areas in the field are much higher. And so if you want to apply nitrogen in the fall, maybe that's what you want to do, but don't do it in those areas where you have more potential for loss. So managing that way is very important. And, and again, the nitrogen rate, the, 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 the MRTN calculator is a really useful tool because it incorporates the agronomics and the uh, economics into it. Um, but it is not an absolute thing. You have to be looking at all of the conditions in your farm to make those, those decisions. And one more thing that I want to mention about the, the MRTN calculator, you know, sometimes uh, folks look at this and say, well, it's all driven by economics. Uh, and what about the environment? Well, um, I can tell you looking at the research very consistently, and when I talk about consistency, nitrogen is a big word because it's extremely inconsistent. There are, There's so much variability, but very consistently what we see is that if you apply the MRTN or less 
environmentally, there is really no much difference. Like if you apply no nitrogen or you apply the MRTN, in terms of environmental benefit, there is no much difference. The big problem starts when you apply more than what you need economically and agronomically for that crop. At that point, you are basically putting more nitrogen that the crop will use, and that nitrogen will end up in the environment somewhere. And so trying to make sure that we look at that MRTN and we stay within that range of values, uh, and again, you can adjust up or down knowing the conditions of your farm, is extremely valuable, both economically and environmentally. Yeah, I just wanted to come back on one one point, circle back on one point that you made earlier that I think is is we talk about it a lot, but I think it, it's it's really critical here is that the 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 crop is really going to start using this end you know in June or beyond, and so not only do we have this investment going out much before that time, there's a lot of weather factors that are going to happen between now and then. Um, so the closer that we can make these decisions or the more of our investment, the more investment we can make towards the time when that crop really needs it, it allows us to fine tune those rates much more carefully. And so we're much better able to do a better job of providing just what the crop needs rather than just making sure we have, you know, at this time of year, we're just dumping enough on to make sure that we have enough next year. And so I think that's I think that timing piece and and that flexibility and I think farmers have come a long ways in this from the days of just doing all their nitrogen in the fall, uh, certainly. But it, it it does show that there is still room uh, to go and I think farmers can continue to think about ways that they can maybe alter their alter their um, their uh, the logistics on their farm to be able to better apply nitrogen and, and other fertilizers close to the time when they need them. Yeah, I mean, t- time is like interest, you know? It can be your enemy or your friend, depending where which side you are in, right? If you have, <laughs> if, if you have, if interest is working for you, it's great. But if it's working against you, uh, then it's a problem. And the timing is exactly the same thing here. Um, the closer that you can, or the longer that you can wait, Time is your friend because it allows you to make decisions based on what you know that happened already. We, When you look at when we lose nitrogen, it's a little bit in the fall, depending on how wet it is. And then the majority of it is in the spring before about June. When, when you look at the potential for loss, typically to about the middle of June or earlier is when you have the most potential for loss. So if you can move that application later, um, and yes, the crops need some nitrogen. You apply a little bit, but then you wait until that point where the crop is already growing. You know what happened with the weather, and then you make that decision at that point, and you can use other tools. Like we haven't talked really about, you know, canopy sensing, things like that. You can you can start to dial in closer to what that crop will need because we really talk a lot about rate. But in reality, the rate has very little to do with environmental losses or economic gains. It has to do with utilization. If you apply the amount of nitrogen that the crop needs, that's where the benefit lies. Uh, And like mentioned earlier, you know, there is a distribution in these responses. So there are years where you might need more nitrogen and it's okay because the crop needs that nitrogen. If you apply the economic optimum in a year where you needed less nitrogen, you are going to lose some of that nitrogen. And so being closer to that time where you know a little bit better what the crop will need can really pay off. Talk about timing. I think we're going to be the end of our our podcast time here. 
But we just wanted to mention that <clears throat> a couple of things, University of Minnesota Extension uh, Soils and Nutrient in that area that you're working with has an excellent website. Uh, then go to that. We do crop news on, on a regular basis, so a lot of that information is available that. Uh, the calculator that we talked about is online, and certainly you can search uh, for that on, on corn nitrogen rate calculator here and pick your state in Minnesota and put your economics in as well as your cost of an, uh, cost of N and so forth. Uh, with a lot of that. Any last things that you'd like to mention here as we close out the program, Fabian? I, I would just say, um, you know, the fall is always a busy time of the year. Be safe. I, I always remind folks to be safe. Um, it, there are long days in the farm uh, and, and enjoy the, the, the beautiful weather and think critically about these, these things that we talked about, you know. Uh, it's uh, nitrogen decisions are extremely important. They kind of make it or break it economically for you. And again, everything we do has an environmental impact. And so look at those things as well. Keep that in mind as you make these decisions and, uh, and use us as a resource. We, we do a lot of research and we do it for, for the farmers um, so that they can um, use these best management practices to, to benefit themselves. And this is not the only podcast that you're on. The nutrient management team that you're part of does a regular podcast as well uh, with your coworkers and other, other scientists and other people at experiment stations and so forth. So uh, that's part of the checkoff dollars. So good opportunity. I know that you have more time there. You can really get in depth and uh, people can search for that. Most definitely. Yeah, and uh, a lot of good information on there, and I anticipate you'll probably be doing a couple of those coming up here this fall. Well, thank you very much, uh, uh, Fabian, for stopping by uh, for today. We appreciate your your time here and talking with us on Minnesota CropCast. And so this has been Dave Nikolai along with uh, Dr. Seth Nave at the University of Minnesota uh, Extension. And this is Minnesota Podcast, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.